Hey, so as we go into our time of teaching, if you would, inside your program, there is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you not only follow along with the time of teaching, but to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to say a quick prayer for us, and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, we are here to learn from you. Jesus, we have already had a wonderful service where we've gotten to sing and declare who you are and who we are as a result. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you are the same God all throughout the globe, and we got to commission a team that is going to speak and share the light of Jesus around the world. Jesus, thank you now that we are about to open your word, which is living and active. I pray that we come to it with a humility to hear what you are saying to us. I pray that we see it with filters removed that you are using your word to transform our lives and to transform our world through that. And so, Father, as the communicator, as I often pray, I pray that I would become less, that I would fall to the wayside, that I would be forgotten, but that you, Jesus, our Christ would be more, that you would be clearly revealed through scripture, that you would continue speaking and training us as we leave this place, Jesus. We don't need to ask you to speak because you already are. As your church, we are committed to listening. In your son's name, we all said, amen. So this morning, we are concluding our series that we've been in for the last several weeks called Unfiltered, the Audience of One. And I'm very excited that this is the last time I need to do this series setup. But in case you haven't been with us, the heart of the series is pretty simple, that when it comes to who Jesus is, what Jesus says, what it means to follow after him, we often tend to approach Jesus and see him through a series of filters that distort not only who he is, but it distorts what it means to follow after him. So throughout this series, what we've attempted to do is we've gone back to the first century, to one of the earliest accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus, the gospel according to Matthew in the New Testament of our Bibles. And through the word of God, we've been looking to the Holy Spirit to remove and destroy the filters we've had and to capture new images, true images of who Jesus is and what it truly means to follow after him. Now, this series in particular has focused on the Sermon on the Mount, on Matthew chapter five through seven, which is the most famous teaching that Jesus ever gave, and it's arguably the most famous teaching in the history of the world. And throughout this teaching, what Jesus does is he lays out his epic kingdom vision. He says that the kingdom of God is now here in the person of Jesus, and that changes everything, and it creates a brand new reality, and that this new reality requires a new type of person, a transformed person to inhabit that. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us what that looks like to be that new person that is now a partner in his kingdom. And so last week, Michael began the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount, that as we look at the last areas of Scripture in this teaching, Jesus introduces four final charges or challenges that distinguish between the difference of a true follower versus a fake or a false follower. 
And so this morning, as we wrap things up, we're going to be looking at the last two challenges that Jesus gives us. And as we approach our scripture, I would like you to have this image as we approach it. And I want you to approach today as the, with the image of commencement or a graduation. Many of you would think of a high school or a college graduation. And the reality is that a commencement is supposed to celebrate two key things. The first one is that it celebrates the end of one season, which is often where we place a majority of the focus, but the reality is a commencement is also celebrating the beginning of a much bigger journey. In fact, I put it there on your note sheet that the word commitment itself means a beginning or a start. And so again, if you think about it in a high school or a college context, at commencement, what the message is, is you've now learned, now it's time to go and do. And so as we read these final words in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying is, you have now learned about the kingdom of God. You have now learned about who Jesus truly is and what it means to follow after him. Now it's time for you to go and do the beginning of a brand new journey. And so with that, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles, turn on our apps. And if you're following along with your note sheet, You've got a section titled Defining True Wisdom. That word is going to come up a lot in our passage today. And so we're going to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. And if you've got your physical Bibles, I hope you have a writing implement. If you've got your apps, have the highlight function ready, because as usual, we're going to mark this passage up this morning. Starting at verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, would you underline the word says? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does, underline that, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So let's stop right there and let's unpack this. Right now, we see the heart behind these final four challenges that Jesus gives, the difference between a true and a fake follower, and it has everything to do with the state of our heart, the internal change that has happened. And so what Jesus is describing is someone who calls him Lord, and Jesus is using that word as a messianic title. They are calling Jesus the right thing, but what has happened is that their faith is no deeper than that. Their hearts have not been changed. And so while they're saying the right thing, while they're declaring the right title, they are not, they do not have the right standing with God. And so as he continues in verse 22, he continues this point and he says, many will say to me on that day, would you underline that phrase, that day? Once again, this is a revelation that Jesus is the Messiah because that day is the future day of judgment in which all of us living and dead will stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives. Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah by saying he has the authority to sit in judgment over mankind. He says, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles. Verse 23, then 
I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Would you underline that? I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Now let's unpack that because that got intense, didn't it? And so again, Jesus is, making, is, is painting this clear picture between true faith and false faith. So not only are these people saying the right thing, but Jesus is also telling us that they're involved with the right activities. They are involved with religious activities. So let's think about it in our everyday culture today. These would be the people that go to church regularly, that never miss a service. These would be the people that regularly give financially to the church. These would be the people that are in life group. Maybe they're even leading life group. These would be the people that are serving in first impressions or kids ministry. These would be the people that are doing all of the religious things. And Jesus is not indicting these religious things. He's making a deeper point that the external is not what he looks at. The internal is what counts that it is possible to do all of the right things and yet have a heart that has not been transformed by God, to have a heart that is not repentant, to have a heart that is not submitting to his leadership. That is the problem. See, a true disciple of Jesus is not someone who is perfect. A true disciple of Jesus is not someone who never struggles spiritually. A true disciple of Jesus is not someone who knows the answer to every spiritual question that could ever come up. A true disciple of Jesus is one who has given their heart, their very identity, to Jesus. And when they do these good and right acts, it comes out of an overflow of the transformation that has already happened, not in spite of it. And so when Jesus says, I never knew you, what he is declaring is, I don't acknowledge who you claim to be. And this echoes a beautiful metaphor that Paul uses in his writing. When he's arguing with the religious leaders, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says that on the outside, you look ornate and beautiful. And on the inside, you're dead. On the inside, you are absolutely rotting away. See, if you remember earlier at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five, Jesus says, your righteousness, your right relationship with God needs to surpass that of the religious leaders because this is what the religious leaders modeled and taught. But Jesus is saying, I have come for your heart. And this is echoed, this is a theme that is echoed often in the Old Testament. See there on your note sheet, I put an example out of the life of the prophet Ezekiel. As the Lord is preparing Ezekiel to be a prophet, to go and speak the word of God to people, the Lord is preparing Ezekiel for how some are gonna respond to him. He says there in your note sheet, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. And so to help illustrate this point, if you've been with us several weeks ago, Michael, made the, Michael talked about the fact that there is a significant difference 
between someone who is a fan of Jesus, someone who likes what Jesus has to say or who Jesus is, and someone who follows Jesus, someone who is seeking transformation, is seeking to be made new. And then Jesus transitions and gives us the final of these challenges still on this theme, and he does it by presenting a parable or a metaphor. And in this, he defines what it truly means to be wise and what it means to be foolish. And so as we continue reading, verse 24 Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, would you underline that phrase? And puts them into practice is like a wise man. Highlight that. Is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall. Would you underline or highlight that phrase? Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is defining what real wisdom, what true wisdom is all about. And so to really understand and engage this teaching, what we need to do is we need to remove our filters and how we see, define, and understand the concept of wisdom itself. And so let me just ask you a couple of rhetorical questions to kind of gauge what your starting point is. How would you currently define what wisdom is? See, in our culture at large, it's a word that gets used a ton in a variety of different ways. And so it's almost hard to nail down one prevailing definition. And so how would you define wisdom? One follow-up question to maybe help you with that, who would you picture when you think of wisdom? Do you think of a specific person? Do you think of an organization? Do you think of a book or anything like that? How would you picture wisdom? You know, in my life, when I picture wisdom, one of the first images that come to mind is Yoda from the Star Wars movies. Yoda dropped a lot of wisdom bombs on us that we can apply. But I think a lot of us would have a similar picture. You may not be picturing Yoda, but when we think of wisdom, we think of this wise old sage, right? We think of someone who has lived a long life, who has experienced a lot of stuff, and who are giving us their wisdom. And so again, that then, that then asks another follow-up question in your head. Well, how do you gain wisdom? How does someone become wise? And once again, our culture is not fully clear on this. Sometimes it's based on your academics. What have you learned? What type of schooling you've done? Sometimes it's based on this kind of weird, ambiguous, well, you make right choices. But again, it becomes the question of what determines that? And often our definition of wisdom is rooted in what our culture determines is right and wrong. Often, our definition of wisdom is what the culture says is wise, what is popular opinion. And because of that, the definition of wisdom changes. So what was considered wise two months ago is no longer wise anymore. So again, that's a window into where many of us are starting. Now let's understand how Jesus defines wisdom for us. Biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, The wisdom we are called to is rooted in the never-changing identity of God. 
Biblical wisdom is rooted in who God is. It is rooted in who you and I are as a result of who God is. It is rooted in the purpose he has called us into our lives, into the truth of what the most important thing we could be doing with our time is. See, understand, wisdom is given by God. Wisdom is imparted by God through transformation. Without Jesus, there is no wisdom. We cannot understand what it is to be wise or live a wise life without Jesus transforming our lives. And so my simple definition of wisdom is this, something you've heard before. Wisdom is listening and following the leading of Jesus in our lives. Wisdom is listening and following the leading of Jesus in our lives. And you know what I love about how Jesus defines wisdom is this now opens up wisdom to all people. Whether you are physically young or physically older, you are called and can be a person of wisdom. Whether you've been walking with the Lord beautifully for decades or walking with Jesus for days, you can be a person of wisdom. He gives it freely through his transformation. And so by using this imagery of the house, he says that wisdom is not only a solid foundation, but this rock is the most firm foundation we can build our lives on. And then he talks about this storm. Now understand in ancient Israel, as well as modern Israel, It didn't rain that often, but when it did, it was common that there would be torrential downpours in this area. Now understand, if you're like me, growing up in Southern California, we're not talking about what we call rain. It sprinkles out of the sky, we lose our minds and forget how to drive. That is not what the rest of the world sees rain being. When it would rain in Israel, the Jordan River would overflow. It was common experience for people to see houses built on weak foundations get swept away. And so is this storm not a great metaphor for life? Is this storm not a great metaphor for what we face every day? We face the fury of the waters. We face the fury of the winds. But the question is, what is our life built on? And what's beautiful about this truth is there are many of you here this morning that are living proof to the truth of Jesus's words, that your life has been built on the foundation of his identity, his wisdom, and you have gone through a storm. You have gone through a financial storm, a relational storm, an unexpected storm, a tragedy, something trying, and you are still here today because of the foundation you rooted yourself in, which is the the identity of Jesus. And that's what wisdom does. And then he goes on to define what foolish means. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. Would you highlight that? And does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Highlight that. Is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Underline that last phrase. Highlight it. A great crash. So the definition of foolish is not naivety or confusion. The definition of foolish is hearing the words of Jesus and not putting them into practice. 
is not repenting and submitting in our hearts. And here's what's key in both charges he's given us. Those that are foolish often don't see themselves as such. Those that are foolish often see themselves as religious. In fact, the foolish often are not saying, I want to build my life on a, on a, on a, on a um, moldable foundation. I want to have a weak foundation in my life. I want to risk a great collapse. Often the foolish are those that think, well, this is good enough, right? This is what it means. This is all Jesus is going to get. And we need to understand the gravity of Jesus' words is that the way of the foolish does not simply damage the house of our lives. It leads to complete ruin. There are no loopholes in this. There's no wiggle room. This is what happens through foolishness. And so Jesus continues, or excuse me, then as Jesus wraps up his teaching in verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. Would you underline that? The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught at one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So if you were one of Jesus' Jewish listeners, this concept, this picture of the house standing firm, this is fulfilling and affirming what you have been raised up, the imagery in the Old Testament, particularly in wisdom literature. In fact, I put a couple examples there on your note sheet. The first one from Proverbs 10, when the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm together. And then from Proverbs 12, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous stands firm. And so Jesus is teaching with the authority of Scripture. And why they were amazed was they had never encountered a teacher like this. See, what was common was that the religious leaders, the scribes that would teach them, when they would present a teaching or a viewpoint, they often wouldn't appeal to their authority, but they would appeal to the authority of scholars, of leaders that had come before them. Let me give you an example. Let's say I was in college and I was turning in a paper on some scientific theory. I would present my viewpoint and I would want to support it with expert facts and opinion. So I would probably have quotes from an Albert Einstein, if I could, or a Stephen Hawking. And that's often how the religious leaders taught, that the authority and the scholars that went before us affirm this. That is not how Jesus taught. Jesus taught from his authority because of who he is. We've seen the phrase often that he says, truly I tell to you, which is a phrase of authority. Matthew throughout the entire gospel wants to make it clear that Jesus has ultimate authority because of his ultimate identity as the son of God. But again, as we follow this charge, as we see the response of the people, we still need to ask this guiding question. What will they do with their amazement? Will the amazement fade and they'll go back to life as usual? Or will they use it as a catalyst to pursue something more? And so that's our time in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we wrap up this passage, what I wanna do as I often do is I wanna take a little bit more time to unpack this key truth of Jesus and then look at some practical implications for our lives. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled Jesus' Key Truth. And your fill-in is this. Transformation 
is what makes us wise. Transformation is what makes us wise. And so as we talk about transformation, as we talk about pursuing transformation, in fact, that word and that pursuit is such a guiding concept for us as a church, we need to remember the big picture of what we are being transformed into. And so when we say transformation, that is Jesus creating us in his image. That is Jesus creating us to be reflections of him in our lives and in our world. When we talk about pursuing transformation, we're talking about us transforming so that we reflect the character of Jesus, so that we reflect the love of Jesus, so that we reflect the passion and purpose of Jesus. So understand what this means for wisdom, that wisdom is all about becoming more and more like the person of Jesus in our everyday life. That is what wisdom and transformation is all about. And what's beautiful about the Sermon on the Mount is that if you look at every command, every teaching, every charge that Jesus issues, it's not only a command for who he wants us to be, but it's a revelation of who he currently is. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the identity of Jesus and reveals that his desire and his epic vision for our lives is to turn us into a reflection of him. That is true wisdom. And as we look at some of the key examples, this isn't everything in the Sermon on the Mount, but let's look at how some of these examples reveal Jesus. When Jesus called us to be mindful about our oaths, when he calls us to be a person of honesty, to be a person of integrity, to be authentic with how we live our lives, he calls us to be that because that is who Jesus is. That is his identity. When Jesus calls us to have a radical new view of those we would call our enemies, that instead of being people that hate and show violence and vindictiveness towards our enemies, that we would be a people of love, that we would actually engage and enter into their lives, that we would pray God's best and salvation in them. He calls us to be that because that is who he is. That is Jesus's identity. When he calls us to actively care for the needy and the marginalized, to make that a priority, to make the world a better place and to help and love other people. He calls us to be that because that is who Jesus is. That is his identity. When he calls us to be a people that are devoted to prayer, that are devoted to that relationship with God, that regular dialogue with the Father in which we ask and receive what we need, he calls us to that because that is who Jesus is. That is his identity. When he calls us to be a people who are not judging, but are quick to mercy, are quick to grace, are looking intensely to find the good and the light of God, even in the darkest of peoples and souls. He calls us to that because that is who Jesus is. That is his identity. And so as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, as we look at wisdom, it is Jesus transforming us to be more and more like him. And this is absolutely essential 
if we're gonna follow Jesus well. This is why this entire journey has been called unfiltered because to see what he calls us to be, we need the spirit and the word of God to remove and destroy our filters. Because understand that sin in our life, our flesh is often the biggest filter of all. That our sin, whatever it may be, our tug to the dark side, what it wants to do, it wants to distort the image of Jesus. It wants to minimize the role of Jesus in our life. In fact, our sin doesn't want to follow the leadership of Jesus, but our sin often wants to create a Jesus in our own image. Our sin does not want a king we submit to, but our sin wants an advisor that agrees with everything we say and do. Our sin does not want the Messiah and the Christ. Our sin wants a silent yes man that never challenges me, that never corrects me, that never calls me on my sin. See, and we see this in what I would say is one of the most important encounters in the life of Jesus later on in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16. And it's not in your note sheet, but would you write that reference down so you could spend some time in it later? Matthew chapter 16. So let me set the scene. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the villages near a key city called Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city, while in Israel, was known to be a heavily Greek and Roman city. In fact, it was known for its pagan worship, specifically of the god Pan. And so in this city where there was religious confusion and hostility, Jesus begins to ask some key questions of his followers. So the first question he asks his followers, who do people say I am? What are they saying about him? And to put it in our common vernacular, his followers respond with, hey, you're polling really well. Your poll numbers are great. People think you're from God. People think you're a unique leader. They're comparing you or think you're Moses or Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets from the Old Testament. This is awesome, right? And again, we see the heart of God is that when it comes to his identity, close enough is not good enough. So then he made the question personal. But what about you? Who do you say I am? So men and women understand this truth that that is the most important question we will answer in our lives. That question determines the course of our life in this world, and that question determines the course of our eternity. Whether people realize it or not, every last person on this earth is living their life based on their answer to this question. And so Peter, representing the disciples, they declared, you are the Messiah. Now, some cultural context helps us understand that this was a big deal. This was not a title or a declaration that Peter and the disciples made lightly. See, as Jewish men, as faithful Jewish men, they had grown up waiting for God's Messiah. The word means anointed one. They understood that this was who God would send to change everything about their world. See, it would be blasphemy to declare somebody a Messiah who was not. So they did not take this lightly. This was a key declaration. And what we're gonna see is that they had the right title for Jesus, but they had the wrong understanding of what that meant. 
See, they had created a social expectation of the Messiah. They wanted a political hero who would save their immediate problems, their social problems, and a Messiah that would only care about the Jewish people and not the rest of the world. But Jesus begins to explain that God's Messiah is about bringing freedom from sin for all people, establishing an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus defines what it means that he is the Messiah. He says that to fulfill God's work, Messiah needs to suffer. Messiah needs to be betrayed. He needs to die on a Roman cross. And what do the disciples do? Peter rises up, pulls Jesus aside, and rebukes him. Peter begins to say, Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus, that is not what Messiah does. Or let's put it in this language, that is not what my Messiah does. Let me tell you what my Messiah would do. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us some biblical humility in this because it could be tempting to look at Peter and roll our eyes and go, Peter, come on, what are you doing? It could be tempting to say, well, here goes Peter again, sticking his foot in his mouth. But when the Holy Spirit gives us a holy humility, we I see, I see that I am like Peter in my life. That I am down with Jesus being Messiah until I don't like what that means, until I disagree, until it challenges my ideals, until it calls me out on my sin and I begin to rebuke him and I go, that is not what my Messiah does. And so again, to follow the path of wisdom, we need to reflect on this question. Is there any areas in which you are rebuking Jesus? Is there anywhere in your life where you are attempting to call the shots? Again, we need a humility to see where we're doing this. As we look in the Sermon on the Mount, are we a people that are saying, no, Jesus, my Messiah would not tell me to deal with my anger. My Messiah would not tell me to love these people who are my enemies. My Messiah would say, attack them, go after them. They're on the wrong side of morality. They're on the wrong side of history. My Messiah wouldn't want to love them, but my Messiah would weaponize everything we are against them. Or sometimes we say, no, Jesus, my Messiah has limits on taking care of the needy. You know what? These people are needy. These people are needy, but not those people. They do it for other reasons or this and that. That is not what my Messiah would do. Or we would say, how about this one? No, 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 Jesus, my Messiah would not command me to not worry. My Messiah would not say to focus on God because if I don't worry, then my problems don't get fixed. If I don't worry, then stuff doesn't get done. And so my life is moving quick and I need to worry and fix it. So my Messiah would not say, don't worry. And we could go on and we could go on and we could go on. But understand this, true wisdom is not creating a Jesus made in our image, but it's submitting to Jesus and allowing him to create us in his image. Amen. True wisdom is not creating a Jesus in our image, but it's, a, but it's submitting and allowing him to create us in his image. And so as we talk about removing our filters, as we talk about seeing the true image, then part of that is we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to remove the filters with which we see ourselves through. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for a, for a supernatural humility to see us as we truly are. 
See, often we're like the people Jesus spoke out against, that we're doing all the right things. Often we, would, we are blind to our sin to go, no, 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 I don't struggle with that. I don't struggle with pride. I don't struggle with anger. I don't struggle with this. I don't struggle with that. And the truth of the matter is something I found in my life is that I find myself very good and perceptive of calling out specific sins in people's lives that I know very well because they're the sins that I'm hiding or blind to in mine. And so when you need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us our truth, not to shame us, not to guilt us, but that so we can begin this pursuit of transformation. As I often say, authenticity is the first step towards transformation. And so what I want to do is I want to give us, these aren't in your note sheet, but I want to give us a series of questions and scenarios to reflect on and to ask ourselves the honest question, are we reflecting Jesus in our life with these people or in these areas? And again, the goal of this is not to shame you. It's not to give you a test that's pass or fail, but it's to show us where is there an opportunity for the Lord to to lead us to wisdom. And these can be areas we're often blind to. And so they're gonna run a whole gambit of different scenarios. So let's go ahead and start off small. One thing that we spend 90% of our time doing in Southern California is driving on the freeway, right? Let me ask you the very real question. Do you reflect Jesus when you're behind the wheel? And it sounds kind of goofy and funny, but really that's a harsh starting point for many of us. Do you reflect Jesus when you're stuck in traffic? Do you reflect Jesus when you get cut off? Do you reflect Jesus when the car in front of you is not driving at the holy speed you wish they were? (laughs) Let's go ahead and talk about some of our everyday interactions. Do you reflect Jesus in how you interact regularly with waiters and waitresses, customer service representatives, uh, retail workers? Do you reflect Jesus when things are going well? Do you reflect Jesus when a mistake has been made, when your order was messed up, when you've been waiting for help on customer service for 20 minutes? Do you still reflect Jesus in those scenarios? Do you reflect Jesus, let's go to our relationships, when it comes to having conflict with members of your family? Husbands and wives, spouses, do you reflect Jesus when your spouse is 100% right? Do you reflect Jesus when your spouse or loved one is 100% wrong? Do you reflect Jesus when your kids are on your last nerve or you don't understand why your teenager or college student is making the decisions that they do? Do you reflect Jesus when it comes to your heart of having children? Do you reflect Jesus when it comes to your deep friends Are you someone who gives and serves or are you someone who is often taken? Do you reflect Jesus when those friendships are challenged or they even fall apart? Do you reflect Jesus in the painful relational breakdown of a divorce, whether it's your own, whether it's that of a loved one, whether you're still dealing with the divorce of a parent? Do you reflect Jesus even in those trying situations? Do you reflect Jesus when you have financial security and stability? Do you reflect Jesus when you don't have financial security, when you don't know when the next paycheck is gonna come? 
Do you reflect Jesus when you, when you are challenged on your faith, whether it's a friend, a coworker, or a loved one that challenges this belief in Jesus? Do you reflect Jesus when our culture challenges our faith? When our culture says that there's no Jesus, there's no need for this morality, do we still reflect him in the way we engage? Do you reflect Jesus in your position on politics and hot cultural issues? Are you passionate about your patriotism in a way that is still reflecting Jesus? Do you reflect Jesus in how you engage in social media, both in the fact that we are not, that, to not use social media as a weapon, as a way to destroy, or as a way to hurt, but also do you reflect Jesus in what you're looking to get out of social media? Is social media a tool that's fun and a way to stay connected or social media where you try to find some type of fulfillment, where you try to find some type of validation based on likes and comments. Do you reflect Jesus based on your calendar? Does your calendar say that Jesus is your priority, both in your one-on-one -on -one relationship with him, in your corporate relationship with your church community? Does your family's calendar reflect Jesus in your life? Do your kids know that Jesus trumps everything else, or are there idols in our calendar life that show we will get to Jesus when the real important stuff is done? Do you reflect Jesus in your prayer life? Do you reflect Jesus in how you view the word? And we could go on, we could go on, we could go on. But again, know the point of this reflection. It is not to guilt and shame us, but if you are feeling a holy conviction, it is because the presence of Jesus in this moment is calling you to something more. It is because the presence of Jesus has not given up on you, has not abandoned you, sees you as a person of wisdom and says, if you are not reflecting me in this area, let me give you my life, give you my spirit, give you my power, and let's transform in this area. See, I love how it's put there in your note sheet. I came across this article just in the last week titled, How to Be Unholy as You Pursue Holiness. And it's a long quote, but it's a great one. The author says this, to put it as a question to those of us who know us best, think of us as people who embody love. That's a core aspect of the identity of Jesus. Is loving one of the main words they might use to describe us? Do they think of us as patient, as kind, as not envying, as not boasting, as not proud, as not dishonoring others, as not self-seeking, has not easily angered, not keeping a record of wrongs, not delighting in evil, but rejoicing with the truth, always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering as 1 Corinthians 13 commands. Do these things typify your life? And then he continues, we might know our doctrine, pray regularly, read scripture daily, fast weekly, follow all sorts of biblical commands. And yet, if we are not lavish in love, we are not holy because we are not like God. And then he continues, how do we change? Not by running from God in shame and trying harder. It comes as we come to, it happens as we come to him with our lack of love and bask, I love that word, and bask in his because his love transforms. When we open our hearts to the father's love for us in Christ, we become filled with that holy love and it can't help but spill out to those around us. 
To be a person of wisdom, Jesus will give us the wisdom we require. He will give us the transformation he has called us to be. Every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, of this new reality, Jesus says, I will do the heavy lifting. What we need to do is listen and follow. And so with that, as we wrap up our time, I wanna look briefly at just two practical steps we can take to become a people that are pursuing and rooting ourselves in wisdom. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled Pursuing True Wisdom. We could also say Pursuing Transformation. Your first fill-in is this, regularly pursue scripture. Regularly pursue scripture. If you're familiar with me as a teacher, you know that often I will always come back to this practical application because when we have a regular one-on-one rhythm with God's holy Bible, what that does is that immerses us in truth. I love that word, immerse. It immerses us in truth. It immerses us in the truth of who God is. It immerses us in the truth of who we are as a result and it immerses us in truth as to the, what is the purpose of my life. And as a sinful, fallen human being, as a recovering narcissist, I don't need to dip my toe in truth. I need to be completely immersed in truth. And what's beautiful is that as we develop this relationship with Scripture, the Lord will use Scripture to teach us, to encourage us, and at times to grow us by calling us out in our sin or in areas in which we're resisting or rebuking Jesus. Let me illustrate this with a moment from my life. Just a couple weeks ago, I was driving up the 118 and there was a car in front of me and this car had a bumper sticker that was uh, highlighting a viewpoint or a worldview that let's say I vehemently disagreed with. Don't act like this hasn't happened to you either. And the more I kept reading this bumper sticker, the angrier and angrier I got at this person. I had never met this person. I didn't even know what they looked like. They were faceless to me because they're in the car in front of me. But all, as I kept looking at the bumper sticker, all I kept thinking was, I am right, they're wrong. How could they possibly believe this? And they must be destroyed. Now understand the truth of my heart in this. There was no empathy in my heart for them. There was no willingness to try to understand or a curiosity to engage in dialogue, even though we're on the freeway. All I knew was they are right and I am wrong. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit brought scriptures to my mind that he used to hit me upside the head like a holy two by four. See, in that moment, I heard the Holy Spirit go, Dre, is this who I have called you to be? And he used the Sermon on the Mount to teach me. In that moment, the Holy Spirit brought up Matthew 5, 44, where it says, love your enemies and, and pray for those that persecute you. Are you doing this towards that person? He brought up Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, show mercy and grace. Look for the light of God in them. Are you doing this towards this person? And yet as a sinful human being, I still wrestled with God. I said, but God, they're wrong. <laughs> and God's response to me, so whether they're right or wrong, Dre, does that give you the right to resist my transformation? 
And the Holy Spirit used this scripture to clearly ask me to make a choice. I would either choose the way of wisdom or I would choose the way of foolishness. And it broke me. Man, I was having a spiritual moment on the 118. (laughs) And I began to repent. I repented to the Lord for my being quick to anger. I repented to this person. I didn't even know what they look like for not seeing that they are created by God and he loves them just as much as he loves me. I repented of the fact that I didn't let scripture guide me initially and I rejoiced that this was an opportunity to grow more, that God was using this. And so whatever your means of engaging in scripture, whether you're reading it, whether you use a devotion, whether you listen to it, one of the apps is reading it to you, When we go into scripture, remember, we are looking to scripture to reveal the identity of God and we are looking at scripture to reveal who God is calling us to be. And the second way that we pursue wisdom, your second felon is this, by regularly pursuing wise counsel. Now the Bible often talks about the importance of having wise counsel in our life. And as we have seen the Lord define wisdom to understand wise counsel, these are men and women who are not perfect, but they are committed to rooting themselves in the identity of Jesus. They are committed to pursuing wisdom in their own life. And so the value of having these people is that it is an opportunity to learn and be affected by the wisdom of what God is doing in their lives. And again, his definition of wisdom opens it up to all people. Wisdom is not reserved for a specific title or for the spiritual elite. Pastors and church leaders are not the only source of wisdom. The people sitting around you, in front of you, they are sources of wisdom. God is doing things in their lives. And for us as a church, that is why we deeply, deeply value life groups. When we gather as a small group of adults once a week, we do not gather as a social club, but rather we gather as a fight club. We are in a spiritual fight and this is where we train and this is where together we commit to rooting ourselves in the wisdom of the Lord as we open up the word together, as we pray for one another. See, I not only love the life group that I'm a part of, I need the life group that I'm a part of. I need these wise voices to speak into my life, to speak into my marriage, to ask me honestly, how are you treating your wife? To speak into my parenting, to speak into my work, home life balance, to speak into my leadership, to speak into my pride, to speak into my addictions and shortcomings. I need their wisdom. And so for us as a church, that is why we would say life groups are the heart of our church because that is an opportunity to root yourselves together with other believers in the wisdom of God together and to hear and learn from the beautiful wisdom of others. So I can't encourage you enough. If you are not yet in a life group, would you stop by and talk with somebody on the patio on the way out? This could be a wonderful catalyst in your life as you continue to pursue God's wisdom. And so with that, what I'd like to do as we wrap up our time is I wanna call the worship team to come on out. 
And as I've mentioned, this is a commencement. See, just because my words and Michael's words are ending on the Sermon on the Mount does not mean that the words of Jesus are ending. In fact, he's just getting started. And so to commemorate that, Rocky Peak, this is a new beginning for all of us. We have our marching orders. We have been called to be a people of wisdom. Together, we're gonna engage in the act of communion. Now, communion is reserved for believers, those men and women that have put their faith and their heart in the life of Jesus, in, in the belief of Jesus. And what we are doing through communion is we are celebrating not only the work of Jesus, not only remembering his death and resurrection, but we are celebrating the identity of Jesus, that through his death and resurrection, he conquered sin and death. And also through the act of Jesus, we celebrate who we now are because of that. That he calls us to be a people of righteousness, a people of holy power, a people of wisdom. And so as we go to communion, Rocky Peak, let this be a time of commitment. Let this be a time of celebration in which you say, Father, I am committed. Here is my heart to pursue wisdom. And so as we engage in the song, we're gonna introduce a new song to you. And it's a beautiful song that talks about how the Lord makes us new. Go ahead and take communion at your pace. You're welcome to go ahead and engage as soon as we start. You're welcome to sit and listen for a little while or pray. There are tables all around the room, but remember, there's a lot of people in here. So as you wait in a line, remember to reflect Jesus as you're waiting in line to pursue communion. And then... Once you're done taking community, we want to invite you to either sit and receive, to stand and worship however the Lord wants to meet you. But let's go and do this act together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that your words never come back void. We thank you that your word is always transforming us to be a person of wisdom. We thank you that you are constantly transforming us to be more like you in every area of our lives. So we as the church at Rocky Peace, both as the entire community and as the individual sons and daughters, we are saying here is our heart. Here is our identity. We want it to be yours. Change it. Transform it. Speak truth into it, Father. If you are showing us a holy conviction, an area in which we're falling short, an area in which we're giving sin a foothold, remind us that you have the power to conquer it. You slay the giants in our life. You do not reveal this so that we live in shame, but that so we can live in the freedom that is brought in the transformation of Jesus. Father, as we go to these tables, as we sing these songs, as we remember who you are and your power over sin and death, remind us that this is who you've called us to be. You have called us to be reflections of your triumph. You have called us to be flag bearers of your victory. You have called us to be partners in your kingdom. You have made the way for us, Jesus and we are committed to pursue you and to pursue wisdom in our lives. Thank you for this time, Jesus. In your son's name, we all said, amen.